This is Jaskaran Sandhu alongside Jaspreet Kaur Val with Ask Canadian 6, the podcast. Uh, it's been a while, Jaspreet Kaur. It has. We've been in quarantine, so everyone was being kind to themselves. It's the, uh, it's the dog days of summer here, uh, but that doesn't mean things aren't happening. Actually, things are happening with uh, such an increasing volume that it's hard to keep up. Uh, but uh, you know we we have a we have another show for you here. We're gonna we're gonna touch upon the UAPA, which is the Unlawful Activities Prevention Act, uh, and what's going on in India right now and criminalizing dissent and silencing political free speech. Uh, the WSO did a larger release and a report on this, and we'll touch upon that. We'll talk about uh, six and the Black Lives Matter movement uh, and the different angles there from a Sikh perspective. And then finally, we'll touch upon a whole bunch of just miscellaneous stuff that we've been up to uh, from uh, Rana Ayub. Uh, we're going to be speaking to her later uh, this month as well, and we'll be sharing that as a separate podcast, as well as what's going on with the Afghan Six situation, uh, and as as uh, as well as other things. Uh, so with that, we'll see you right after the jump. Activities Prevention Act, or the UAPA, which is known as uh, in shorthand. Uh, is a, a law in India that is designed to uh, proactively prevent uh, acts of uh, terror or uh, any kind of acts that will uh, put uh, into question India's uh, integrity and sovereignty uh, as defined by the state. The reality so is... So bizarre. So, yeah. so bizarre. And well, if you, uh, like, WSO put together a full report. So if you want to check out the full thing, you can go to our website. And in the little banner at the front that's constantly changing slides, you'll see a link to it right there. Yeah. And I, I, I think what we have to kind of appreciate here is that a law of this nature um, is fairly draconian because it allows the state to arrest and jail individuals for years at a time without a trial uh, and really with, without uh, building a case for why. And mm-hmm. under the UAPA, uh, they don't have to immediately inform persons of the grounds. It's as soon as may be, which is, which is not very soon. It can take a very long time. Um, so what, you, what you're doing is essentially putting a, a chill and on free speech, you are criminalizing dissent uh, and you, you provide yourself as a state the flexibility to um, really just clamp down on any speech you don't like. The, the and, official rhetoric is that like, if we, the, we put this law in place because we wanna be able to be, to stop terrorism in a really like law and order, harsh state kind of way. And so it's we're preventing terrorism. So as soon as we see terrorism, we can put that person in jail. They don't have to follow the regular process that everyone else does. And then the reach of that is so far, you can define anything as a threat to the sovereignty of India, including, and especially for six, um, the demand for sovereignty. Right. And so the law is by design meant to, not by design, but by, let's say, intent or at least argued intent, is designed to combat terror and uh, pretty much prescribing known terrorist organizations. 
as again defined by the state. Um, but what's what's happening is that it's being used as an instrument of oppression, and it's being used as an instrument to again chill free speech uh, and overreach in ways which we wouldn't come to expect of democracies, at least democracies as we understand in the West. Now, not seeing that uh, other countries aren't guilty of stuff similar to this, right? Like we all remember the Patriot Act. We all remember stuff uh, that's happened over here as well in North America. And there's, there's similar things in Europe. But in the state of India, this, there's, a, there's a significant overreach. And what, what this has been kind of leading to and what the WSO report uh, shares, and the report is called uh, Enforcing Silence, India's Six Social Media, and it came out in July of 2020, is the Indian government is literally deeming uh, folks who like a tweet that touches upon, you know, six sovereignty issues or Khalistan. It's if people even have uh, written materials or books on the issue, um, uh, they're, they're being uh, captured under this law. Uh, and they're, they're being thrown in jail without much of grounds or cases being provided by the state. Uh, and, it's, and it's led to a pretty significant outcry, even within India. Now, it's led to some outcries from the more liberal, uh, you know, India society um, for you know, different reasons. Uh, but then it's also being um, opposed by uh, the Akaltat, who have spoken out uh, slamming the UAPA as a tool that the government's using to arrest and terrorize sick youth. And if you uh, want to like the example, we have over 14 cited examples in the report. And these are just the ones that were um, in publications that came to our attention. Um, and you can go through them and look at them one by one. But you can see like um, someone uh, tweeted uh, the, a Facebook page, a link to a Facebook page, or they liked something. And these people have then been taken and tortured because of something that they put on social media. So, and this is just the same for folks in the diaspora, we're being watched and the smallest indication that you are connected to someone who has mentioned the word Khalistan under the UAPA means that you are a threat to Indian sovereignty and you can be taken into custody. Yeah, so in Punjab, 99% of those that have been charged on the UPA have been six. Uh, now, for a lot of them, uh, the, the grounds are still unclear as to why. Uh, so we don't even know if it's um, the grounds upon which the state has thrown these kids in jail. They and, don't need to. Yeah, and they just don't need to provide that ground, which is super problematic, uh, especially in light of uh, you know free jugging now trending, right? And the conversation mm -hmm. that's been happening around free jugging now, where you you have this conversation of, uh, this individual who's actually of a Scottish um, citizenship or UK citizenship, who's now spent over a thousand days in Indian jail without any evidence being presented as to why and without any case being made, without any conviction. Uh, and this, this goes back to uh, the WS report, which notes that it, you know, sometimes it takes up to seven years uh, before someone is let out because of lack of a conviction, uh, or it can take seven years before even being granted bail. So it, it's super concerning, and it's 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 gathered the um, the interest and the scrutiny of like Amnesty International and the Human Rights Watch as well. So this is a this is not some uh, fringe kind of concern from some segment of society that um, 
uh, you can just shrug away. Uh, this is this is actually a a pretty considerable concern uh, even uh, for you know leading kind of human rights advocacy organizations in the world. And this has been these are platforms that we use in and outside of Punjab, and we saw the recent uh, blocking of the hashtag sick on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And WSO was a part of the conversation with those social media platforms about why this was happening, uh, but the we can't ever underestimate the intention and the power and the money that goes behind anti-Sikh lobbying efforts from the Indian government, because there's a whole machine working to make sure that, um, and this was in June, when we are trying to remember the genocide against Sikhs, that we are not able to freely speak. Yeah, and the timing is not a coincidence. Uh, and you see a heightened activity from uh, the government of India, whenever it's June or November, and th this again, like, uh, falls neatly in line with that. That the crackdown kind of happens around this point in time, and we we see this in India, we see it abroad as well. So, in the case of Canada, where our government signed a security share, sharing framework with the state of India uh, during Trudeau's trip to, uh, well, now infamous trip to mm -hmm. uh, to India, and at the time it was seen as like a capitulation on the part of our government. And, you know, we, we were speaking to folks uh, who've been kind of watching this for a while and security expert folks and something that previous Canadian governments uh, would push back on because they knew this information would be used uh, in context where the rule of law wouldn't be respected. Uh, they would be used in context of uh, terrorizing or abusing family members of activists that, uh, that may activists that live in Canada, uh, but have family back uh, in Punjab or India, uh, and that there's always been a hesitation in signing this thing because you just can't trust Indian government to um, uh, ascribe by the same kind of principles on the rules of law that we may have come to take for granted uh, in Canada. So it seems very arbitrary when you're talking about it, like, oh, Trudeau went to India, they signed an intelligence sharing agreement, but it's now moved out of the realm of something theoretical and political. And now it means that six in Canada, our information is being shared with the Indian government. And if that information with a combination of intelligence sharing and the UAPA, if any of that information means that I have ever liked something that had to do with Khalistan. And we've said this many times, but uh, advocating for self-determination and for sovereignty is not synonymous with terrorism, but everyone seems to forget that and jump straight to Khalistan equals terrorist. Um, that any of that is grounds for the Indian government now saying, oh, thank you for that information. This person is now a threat to our country and we'll deal with it properly. And we saw this with information that's been coming um, from Jagdar Singh and from the, uh, if, if you've been following the free Jaggi hashtag, uh, but do you, ha I have the quote in front of me. Do you, do you have it? Uh, the, what one was this? The one about this uh, photo, I'll just read it. So, uh, yeah, go for it. Yeah, so it says, um, this is from Twitter, from Sikh Sangaj. When Jagdar was being tortured by Indian police, he was shown photographs of Sikh activists from the UK and Canada that could only have come from intelligence agencies or police in the UK and Canada. Yeah, and that came from, I think, uh, Jaggi's brother, uh, that, that quote. And 
again, it, it just from Gurpreet Singh Johal. Yeah, recording, it, yeah. It, and it just goes to show, like, we we raised our voice uh, pretty loudly when the framework was signed that this is this is unacceptable. Um, the Indian state is not prescribed by the same rules that this, the government of Canada is, and the human rights violations there are significant. And that providing this type of information, a security sharing framework with the state on like a formal uh, like uh, process here and an agreement is very dangerous precedent. Uh, and in fact, the Canada had an agreement with India, I think back in the 80s and 90s, and then they realized that India was using this information to torture folks. Um, so they stopped the agreement. And to bring it back now is, is actually incredibly problematic, especially with the news that's been coming out. Uh, and, and especially under this current government, where it's uh, it's you're, you're starting to see in different segments of society, whether it's uh, Dalits, whether it's Sikhs, whether it's the Muslims community, it's it's becoming very clear that um, there's there's a very concerted effort to clamp down on speech, on activism, uh, and, and the freedom and it of debate within the community. It warrants asking if Canada is a country that believes in free speech, believes in protecting their citizens, believes in advocating for self-determination. I always go back to the example of Quebec. We supported Quebecers in saying what they wanted and asking for what they wanted. What does Canada gain from handing over information about its own citizens to a country that does not have those same values? And the uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was a report in the, I think it was the Hindustan Times, I'll try and pull it up, where folks from India were saying that they were actually happy with Canada's response to Khalistanis in Canada. So if India is happy about how we are dealing with, um, they were referencing that Canada wouldn't support the uh, referendum if it came down to it and that they weren't promoting Khalistan in Canada. Um, if India is happy with how Canada is treating Sikhs, that warrants asking, what is our country doing for us that India is happy about their treatment, uh, their treatment of us? Well, it's it's super problematic. That's not an endorsement you want. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> you don't you don't want like a right wing Hindu nationalist Modi government to be like, yeah, Trudeau, I like the way you're treating your citizens. Yeah, like imagine that if uh, uh, this government, I mean, the government India said that about like the Muslim community, like, hey, we love how the this government is clamping down on like Muslim Indians. Yeah. Um, like, no one would stand for that. It would be like, hey, uh, that's that's kind of that's very problematic. That's that's probably warrants a critical analysis of what our government's actually doing and sharing then, or what is it saying behind closed doors with the Indian government? And I think it's worth having those conversations and, and asking those questions. Uh, because we are seeing a, a very tense situation in India with the recent Ram Mandir uh, kind of situation and, um, you know, just, just the, the heightened like sectarian and communal um, yeah, issues that are happening under a, a Hindu nationalist government, uh, that it's coming to head, right? We, we've seen in Jammu Kashmir, we, we see these issues with the Sikh community. Again, we see, this, we see issues that are happening with the Dalit community at the hands of the state. And you got to ask yourself, uh, at what point do we say enough's enough and we start calling it out as as a country, uh, especially one that likes to pride itself as a protector of uh, human rights? Six and Black Lives Matter. We have watched over the past few months as 
all of the systemic oppression and racism and violence that Black scholars and activists have been talking about forever has come to the forefront of popular conversation. The World Tech Organization has been a part of that conversation as well, and we have had to turn our gaze towards ourselves to make sure um, that in this moment where everyone was pausing and checking and writing their corporate statements and their promises to be less racist moving forward, that we were actually doing some of the real work as well. Um, this led us on an interesting journey. We uh, had a couple of things and we've shared all of this publicly as well. We did um, board mandated anti-black racism training and we all some of us for the first time learned what these terms were and relearned the history of Canada in really important ways. There were folks who were enslaved in Canada. Um, we hosted uh, ASIC's, uh, Ask Canadian Six webinar, uh, and that's gonna be released as a special edition of this podcast as well, um, with Dig Singh, who is a black Canadian Sikh, and he and his partner, they shared their experiences. Um, and we also just were present for the conversations where we saw the range of responses in the Sikh community, some of which were like six on the street with folks saying Black Lives Matter. And unfortunately, in some cases, um, and we know this to be true about our community as well, six who were perpetuating the anti-Black racism. Um, and yeah. I think one. Yeah, go ahead. No, I'll just say I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts and uh, just like on the kind of responses sick, the sick community and sick organizations that uh, have a, a say in the community, the kind of positions they should be taking and, and what can we do to help uh, fight like the anti-black racism that exists generally in, in general community and then also within our own. I think the response from sick organizations has been really positive. Um, I think every sick organization I've been working with this summer has contributed and part of their platform to um, working against anti-black racism and the very beginning of that is like learning what it is so that was I know our the Amami group that I'm part of that we do everything from like potlucks to yogas but make sure made sure we took time um, to learn what anti-black racism was and how to raise our kids uh, in a better way so like mommy groups I did something for Sikh Coalition uh, Camp Jadvikla is doing a thing on anti-black racism um, I know Sikh Research Institute did stuff um, WSO did stuff and so those were like some of the really positive responses um, and we also saw uh, our national NDP federal leader Jigmeet Singh take an interesting stance and we saw a really interesting backlash uh, do you want to talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, well, Jagmeet Singh was uh, trying to talk about um, systemic racism, the RCMP, uh, and try to bring forth um, emotion on systemic racism and discrimination. RCMP in the is our like federal, uh, or like state level police force. Yes, uh, and the. <laughs> You know, it, you, it, right now because of the coronavirus and uh, you know everything kind of goes through unanimous or not. Um, and you know he brings this up in the in the uh, parliament, and uh, everyone seems to be in agreement. And then there's this lone voice from the Bloc Québécois, which is like a Quebec uh, nationalist separatist party. Um, that uh, runs uh, fights elections at the federal level, and they usually they will only send representatives from Quebec. Um, 
kind of speaks out and says, no, like I, I will not, um, I'll not vote in favor of this. And there's, there's a heated exchange between uh, Jagmeet Singh and this member of the BQ and Jagmeet Singh calls him a racist uh, for uh, voting against his motion. Uh, but then also like- He did like a motion? Yeah, he, uh, supposedly he, some, like, like there's some physical body language that was happening as well that we don't, uh, I, I haven't seen. I, I don't know if there's a clip out yet. there. I, I don't think there is. Um, and like this dismissive body language and attitude. And yeah, Jagmeet Singh calls him a racist and uh, Jagmeet Singh gets booted for uh, un-parliamentary uh, language, like n- just not uh, being civil inside the house. I, f- I found the quote here. So uh, he, the uh, Black MP said no loudly and made a gesture where he was something like brushing a fly off. Yeah. Uh, and you got to understand the history here too, right? So the, the BQ and like Quebec politics in general, um, they've all pretty much come out and said systemic racism is not a real thing. Like it doesn't exist. Um, this is, is racism doesn't exist in Quebec. Um, Quebec is one of the places where World Sick Organization is uh, doing some of their biggest work, pushing against Bill 21. So right now in public jobs, you are not allowed to have a dastar or a karban or outward symbols of being a sick. That's the same Quebec that these folks are saying is not racist. Yeah, and I think that's the context that I think that's important because I, I'm sure that that played a role in how Jake Meetsing read the body language and read like the dismissive kind of language that came from the block. Um, but in any case, um, they tried to force Jake Meetsing to apologize uh, the house, and Jake Meetsing, I'm not apologizing, and so apologizing for saying that a that racist was a racist. action was right. So to to be yes. clear, the racist action was fine. The racist words and the racist action were fine and our parliamentary behavior and our were allowed and the speaker didn't say anything. Uh, but for Jagmeet to get up and say, this is racist, that was considered improper. Yeah, that's a deal breaker. Uh, and uh, he got kicked out. And I, I think it, like, it generated like a really good conversation around um, exactly that. Like the act of calling out racism is worse than uh, racism itself, <laughs> as far as our health is concerned, and th- that that's such like a statement of the problems uh, within state structures and just like systemic racism in of itself. Um, but in any case, uh, it, it became big news, but it, it generated a, quite a bit of conversation around uh, Black Lives Matter or anti-Black racism uh, in this country, in our House, and in Parliament, and, and on the political national scene. And uh, Jagmeet Singh. Uh, I, I thought handled it very well and and spoke about it pretty pretty strong. And the goal of it was to try and get our um, RCMP to look at themselves and to examine. They were saying there's no racism in the RCMP. There's no systemic racism in the RCMP. Those statements have st- since been taken back and there has been a commitment to examine themselves. But this is the police force that is responsible for um, the administration of residential schools. Uh, that was under the RCMP. So the um, they were an act of genocide. Um, and they were responsible for um, the misreporting and mismanaging of missing and murdered Indigenous women. There have since been uh, like multiple deaths, like in the last couple months alone, uh, of Indigenous and Black folks at the hands of the RCMP. They are invading sovereign ter- territory of Indigenous people as we speak. So uh, unceded territory that hasn't been signed over to Canada, hasn't been signed over to the Crown. The RCMP goes in and occupies and invades it. Um, so they're like... 
these are the these are the kind of things where you see anti-black and anti-indigenous racism is still very much alive and well in Canada. And I think uh, is it was important to see a sick and a prominent invisible sick take a stance against that. And then just to see him attacked on a personal level and experience racism while trying to fight racism. It was a rabbit hole of racism. <laughs> Look at Riley, yeah, it was racism exception. The, the the really odd part of all this was that, yeah, to your point uh, just before, like the RCMP admitted the week before this incident happened that systemic racism exists in the RCMP. Um, and that's a, that, was a, that happened after they corrected an earlier statement before that where they said it didn't. Uh, so the RCMP came around, said, yes, systemic racism is an issue in the force. We got to look at it. One week later, Jagmeet Singh introduces his motion to look at discrimination, systemic racism in the RCMP, and uh, the BQ votes it down. It was we, a redundant uh, motion at that point. Like, you could have just said yes. And who says no to a motion examining, asking to examine racism at well, this political moment? Well, I, in an institution that said, yes, there is. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and then you you have to read in the language of like the BQ history and the Quebec history around uh, dismissing systemic racism uh, in general as like a real thing, and uh, you you can see where again Jagmeet Singh being punished for speaking about racism be, it became the issue, not racism itself. Welcome, Bobri Singh. And thank you for joining us to do an update about the situation with six in Afghanistan. Could you remind all of our listeners what's been going on? Yeah, we've been working on this file since late 2014. Six and Hindus in Afghanistan are facing rising levels of intolerance. Uh, right now, it's gotten to a point where it's unlivable for them. And when I started working on the file, I used to say, you know, around 3,006 are left, and now it's actually down to less than 700. So uh, you all are probably aware that in March of this year, there was the attack on Gurdwara Sri Guru Harai Sahib in Kabul. And a couple, year, uh, a couple years ago, there was the Jalalabad suicide bombing that took out the entire Hindu and Sikh leadership. So it, it's, it's getting much worse. And there's been a couple of kidnappings even in the past uh, few weeks. So it's, it's really, really bad for them. In the time that you've been working on this, um, WSO has done different lobbying efforts. We have successfully brought um, some of the families over. Um, what is it that you see? Are you hopeful? Do you, this, do you see the situation getting better? Do you see it getting worse? The situation for six in Afghanistan is definitely going to get worse. It's not a question of if they'll be attacked again. It's a question of when will they be attacked again, because ISIS has been uh, very clear that they will not relent until six are either killed or or they leave. Um, and on top of that, uh, the American troops there are are pulling out. So uh, as as power shifts away from the government towards these militia groups and and there's less security, there will be more attacks. So what we've been asking for from the start is a special program for these six and Hindus to be relocated as refugees to Canada. And as you mentioned, um, around around one third of the original 250 uh, people that we sponsored have arrived in Canada. Two thirds of them are still in the queue five years later. Um, and what we want to avoid is these folks that are that are left, who are the most vulnerable, having to wait for years and years, either in Afghanistan or or in India, which is the intermediary country, uh, until they get to Canada and they can start their lives in earnest. 
What does it take from the Canadian government to what are we waiting for? And what is the what expenses or burdens will be incurred by the Canadian government by taking this on? So the Sikh community has offered to bear the entire costs of the sponsorship. All we need is the permissions. Um, we've been having regular meetings, which have actually, I'll be honest with you, they've, they've kind of petered off over the past few weeks. That used to be every single week, and then we tried to do every two weeks, and they've canceled the past couple of times. Um, and what they're telling us is that there's no people moving because of COVID, and, and we can't give you a commitment. And what we're saying is that you can give us a commitment to create a special program whenever it's logistically possible. Uh, but they're not giving that to us. And I just read an article today about refugees, the first refugees arriving in a small town in Manitoba from, um, I guess they're Iraqi refugees. So people are starting to get moving again. And and the government now needs to give us an update. I guess the other thing that I will let your listeners know is that uh, 25 uh, MPs, Canadian MPs from three different parties, the Conservative Party, the NDP and the Green Party, signed on to a letter to the immigration minister calling for a special program for these uh, vulnerable Sikh and uh, Hindu refugees. Um, this is kind of unprecedented. You have three opposition parties saying we have no issue and we, we want this to happen. Now I guess it's really up to our immigration minister to, to take the next steps. Uh, there's no reason why they can't make this happen. It's really a question of political will. What power does an unprecedented letter like that have in a minority government? That's an important question. Um, it kind of shows that uh, the opposition isn't, like politics isn't going to be the reason why this can't happen, that the opposition party will not cause any issues. So if you look at who signed, there's 16 conservative MPs and both of the leading uh, leadership contenders, Aaron O'Toole and... Um, his name, Peter McKay, both signed on, and and that's important. Uh, the Green Party in its entirety, all three of its MPs signed on. The NDP, you had six members, and uh, separate from them, Jenny Kwan, who's the immigration and refugee critic, she wrote a separate letter to the immigration minister saying that we want them here right away, which was which was powerful, if you ask me. She she said that if they come now, we can quarantine them, but it it needs to happen right away. So I think the government really now needs to act. If if there's an issue in, in moving, it's completely on the government side, that there's, there's something internal to them. It's got nothing to do with the opposition parties. You can see the full letter on our social media platforms as well as on our website. Um, this is not something that... So um, members of parliament speaking for the interests of their own uh, religious or ethnic group is not something that's unprecedented. It's arguably what Canadian politics are built on, like original politicians would always do things that paid homage to Fran France and England. Um, sometimes it's painted very negatively or it's seen as like um, if a Sikh liberal uh, MP were to ask for something for Sikhs, it would somehow not coincide with towing the party line. Um, we, have we seen examples of other members of parliament asking for rights for their own identity group? 100%. Um, so the Tamil recognition, every year the prime minister and, and members of the Liberal Party, uh, they do a statement for uh, the, the Tamil genocide. 
Um, that was based on the efforts of a lone Tamil uh, MP. And then when you had uh, Prime Minister Trudeau go to, I think it was Argentina, uh, the, he visited a human rights memorial there. And that was based on advice and, and I guess, uh, gentle pressure from uh, an MP from that country, that originally from that country. So working like Christian Freeland has been very outspoken on issues with respect to Ukraine. This isn't unprecedented, but I'll be honest, Sikh MPs speaking out on Sikh issues has been really spotty. It's It's been much less than I would have liked. And it's almost mm-hmm. it seems as though they're afraid of doing it, to be quite honest. It does seem very interesting, especially because what I'm hearing is that this is a small ask. It's a feasible ask. It would put no additional burden on the Canadian government. And it's like a real tangible thing that they can do. And it's in the hands of a small group of people. Um, So with all of the I know folks in the U.S. have been uh, working with uh, six in Afghanistan and working on their human rights. We have been working on it. People in India have been working on it. What are those folks going through right now? What's next for them? So they've, the vast majority of them have reached the conclusion that they can't stay in Afghanistan. It's just too unsafe. Um, they're currently in three different cities. Uh, Kabul is where the majority of them live and the majority of them in Kabul are living in Gordoras. Around 80% are in Gordoras. Um, there's actually only one homeowner in, in Kabul. So only one Sikh owns his his own home there. The rest are either renting, the 20% or 80% are living in Gurdwaras. Then there's communities in Ghazni and Jalalabad. Uh, it looks like the majority of those folks are, are willing to now leave Afghanistan. And it, 11 left in a special flight uh, a, few, a couple of weeks ago. And in in August, there's going to be two special flights that have been planned. Uh, to bring those who want to leave to India. Once they get to India, there's a commitment from different bodies uh, to help them for one year. But that's not a long-term solution because there's no permanent settlement available to them uh, in in India. Uh, Like the CAA, the Citizenship Amendment Act, applies to people that arrived prior to 2015. And these are clearly, obviously, after that. Uh, So their futures in the long term in India are are very uncertain and and their lives they won't have an immediate threat from ISIS but they won't be able to settle down and, and live prosperously uh, so we want them to come to Canada and Canada has done special programs for refugees uh, for example the, the, the Tibetan refugees in Arunachal Pradesh in India the conservative government created a special program for them so they didn't have to wait for years and years uh, the liberal government created a special program for Syrian refugees so we're just asking for a, a small program for these uh, these Afghan Sikh and Hindu refugees so that they don't have to be waiting in limbo for years and years. And I'm hopeful something will become of it. And if not, this government has to answer why. Yeah, so what else has been happening? What else is happening in the world of WSO or Sikh so advocacy in Canada? Yeah, it's been busy. It actually has been so pretty busy. busy. Um, well, I guess I can start. The Just recently, we did our Sikh Youth Leadership Institute. Uh, this is where we bring in about 20 of the you know the brightest, the young Sikhs between 18 to 26, if I remember that correctly, uh, between 18 to 26 from coast to coast. Uh, and it's a competitive application process. Um, 
And uh, we, yeah, we bring together some of the brightest minds, put them through a series of modules and training, really build a, a good rapport uh, and network around them, uh, and then continue to support them afterwards with projects that they're doing in the community to kind of push uh, the SIC community forward. We're at over 100 alumni now. That's an, a very impressive uh, group of uh, young SICs doing really impressive stuff. And it's really fun actually to watch uh, their, their career progressions and their local on the ground activism and their progressions uh, over time, uh, especially when you look back like uh, five years ago from the first crop and all the crazy things they've been up to. Um, yeah, it's quite a powerful group. It is. And it, it's, it's become, it's my favorite thing that we do at WSO, yeah. to be honest. Uh, it's, it's my absolute favorite thing. And this year was a little different because of COVID. We, usually what we do is we bring them down for almost a week to Ottawa. Uh, we fly everyone in and we lodge them uh, uh, right there downtown. And it's, it's a really great experience. Well, this year, it was, it was just a Saturday, Sunday, you know, Zoom. <laughs> and I, I was unsure, like, how this is actually going to play out because the in-person interaction engagement is, is such a big critical part yeah. of it. Um, I think if you're but, listening and you're interested, like if this is a skill set that you would like to develop, if you see anything that the WSO does that you're like, oh, I wonder how they do that. And that's something I want to do um, apply next year, because this is the place that it's such a wonderful gathering of minds where you see this incredible way of doing human rights work, of civil liberties work, of political lobbying, and you get to learn the ins and outs of the organization. Yeah, and it's uh, applications are usually open in spring um and it, it uh, admissions are done in, in the summer and it's held in august of every year um usually a week or two before uh, school comes back on uh during the uh, dog days of summer and yeah easily was super successful gets a lot of interest and, it, and it's been uh, doing some great work in the community uh but yeah that happened recently uh, we're working on uh, Run IU, but we've invited Run IU. I'm who's so a, excited. Uh, yeah. yeah and by the time a, folks are listening to this, depending on when it gets released, it might already be out. Yeah, it may be. Uh, but uh, if it's not, who, let, you know, we're a volunteer organization, so everything kind of happens <laughs> at the pace of volunteers. Um, but having said that, you know, the Run IU conversation, we're super excited about that. really ties in well with the UAPA conversation we had earlier uh, around criminalizing dissent, but also like just the state of affairs in India as it continues to veer towards uh, Hindu nationalism under the BJP. I think you and I have done like an entire podcast just fangirling over Ranayub. If y'all want to go back and listen to that, but just like in a 15 seconds, this amongst the incredible things that she's done as a young woman, she went undercover pretending to film a documentary with right-wing Hindu nationalist politicians and just got them to spill their guts. And she ended up writing her own book. And so she has like stood next to these people and heard their words and she knows all their secrets. She knows them better than anyone else, yeah. <laughs> which is like, it's, it's, it's crazy because she's been doing such great work. Uh, finally got like her global the recognition that she deserved for the, all the stuff she did uh, via New Yorker profile. Uh, which went viral and was amazing right before COVID. And we're supposed to have her down in person for a cross-country tour. So the webinar is just the next best thing. And we, we don't know how long COVID is going to last. And we, we want to really have her speak and, and get her insights, especially in light of what's been going on in India nowadays. Uh, so that's coming up as well. We will be releasing that as a separate podcast. So if you can't catch the, the event live, you will be able to listen to it afterwards. Um, you know, a lot happened on Afghan 6 and Balper Singh, we you know, touched upon that uh, during this podcast as well. And uh, you know, tons of activity there still, a lot of movement. 
And it kind of comes at, down- We're hard at work at uh, trying to make sure that all of that is not forgotten. And you also, you can check out, um, Bob Singh did a video and it's on all of our social media doing an update as well. Oh uh, yeah. And last but not least, international students, yeah. uh, modules and outreach and support. We have our subcommittee, sub team for a small group of like ragtag volunteers. We are super organized and we have like committees on committees and committees, but I'm so excited to be part of this team. Um, so we are uh, coming up with, we're formalizing all the stuff and the advocacy we've been doing for international students in Canada. So it's turned into a faculty module training module that can be self-run or you can have someone from the WSO zoom in and help you run it. Uh, we're finalizing our Know Your Rights training um, that Bulper Singh has put together. And this this is all coming from the bottom up. So it's, we get, we hear about issues through the Sick Family Helpline. Uh, Bulper Singh gives his cell phone number out and people call him and he does advocacy work for them. We hear from the community what's going on. Uh, like recently, we've been hearing a lot of folks are being frauded and scammed. Um, and then we focus our training on those issues. And I think um, there's just a handful. Uh, I, like, honestly, I can just think of us and the International uh, Stick Students Federation who is advocating for international students on a national level like this. Um, so we're coming up with some really good and really relevant material. If you have a post-secondary uh, institution, a connection at a post-secondary institution, and you would like these materials, reach out to us on any of our social media platforms. And I think that kind of rounds up the podcast for yeah. today. It and well, this month. <laughs> we hope that, uh, as always, that sick Canadians continue to stay out of trouble and hopefully there's less to report next time we get together and do this podcast. Next podcast should just be we're all doing good, Indian government staying out of our business, and all of our human <laughs> rights are being honored. Everyone's flying with everyone's flying with thicker fonts. That's the goal. <laughs> No, I, I, it's always fun, never a dull day, and uh, until next time. Bye, Guruji. 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 Bye, Guru